Welcome once again to Fresh Vision Church here in the Northeast, El Paso, El Paso, Texas. Uh, if you're watching online, if you're watching this on Facebook Live or on YouTube video or on YouTube, uh, I just want to thank you for joining us, for checking out this video. Um, I've been praying all week for all of you, and I pray that you, after you're done watching this, you will have been blessed. Um, definitely feel free to leave us a comment on um, any one of those uh, website or social media sites. Um, we'll get back to you as soon as we can, um, but we want to definitely hear from you. All right, so this morning, we're just going to be covering one chapter. I know lately we've been covering two or three chapters um, up until this point, and before I was going to do chapters 15 and 16, but really chapters 14, 15, chapters uh, 13, 14, and 15 were essentially one, one big grouping because it really speaks about the reign of, of Saul. And this chapter here, chapter 15 that we're going to be covering today, is officially the, you know, the official conclusion, the, the, technically the, the conclusion of Saul's reign. I mean, yeah, he will continue to reign and he will continue to be king for a while until, you know, David comes up as king. But um, as you'll see, this technically, you know, ends his reign as, as king. And so, um, up until this point, we've been covering his rise as king. We've been covering some of his military victories. We've been covering, you know, just some of the issues he has, some serious issues that's going on in his heart, um, just the, the pride in his heart. And we've seen some good things in those chapters, such as Jonathan, his son, and, you know, just the just the faithfulness that he had towards God. Now, again, this chapter will officially conclude um, his God-given role, Saul's God-given role as king. Now, one of the things I hope this chapter will show us, or show all of you, is that above and beyond everything we do, everything we do for the Lord, which should be everything. He wants us to have a heart of obedience. And so that's basically going to be essentially the main focus. Yeah, there's going to be other topics here, but that's going to be the main overall focus of this chapter. And again, we'll get more into it as we cover this chapter. So before we get into the reading of God's Word, let's ask Him to speak to us this morning. Lord God, thank you so much lord we are humbled that you've brought us here lord that you have given us another day to to embrace those we love to see your majestic creation your beauty just the the power of who you are lord and so now as we begin this next portion of our time with you lord i pray that you will minister to us that you will speak to us personally lord that through this story of this continued story of Saul and Samuel, that you will show us where we fall short. Lord, we know that your word is powerful and it changes lives. 
So I ask that you change lives here now, Lord, and you change the lives of those that are watching and listening to this, to this message. Move powerfully now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And the word of God says, Samuel told Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Then Samuel summoned the troops and counted them at Talim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul came to the city from, uh, from of, of Amalek, Amalek and set up an ambush in the wadi. He warned the Kenites, since you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, go and leave. Get away from the Amalekites or I'll sweep you away with them. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured King Agag of, Amalek, of Amalek alive, but he completely destroyed the rest of the people with a sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals. As well as the goat, as well as the young rams, and the best of ev the best of everything else, they were not willing to destroy them. But they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel: I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early the next morning, Samuel got up to confront Samuel, Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, then what is this sound of sheep, goats, and cattle I hear? Saul answered, The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, Although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on to the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. 
I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder. The best of what was set apart for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in the burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words, because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. Because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. Now therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not man who changes his mind. Saul said, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I can so I can bow in worship to the Lord your God. Then Samuel went back, following Saul, and Saul bowed down to the Lord. Samuel said, Bring me King Agag of Amalek. Agag came trembling, for he thought, Certainly the bitterness of death has come. Samuel declared, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. Then he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his home in Gibeah, in Gibeah of Saul. Even to this day, even to the day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. Wow. Strong, powerful very vivid chapter here as i had mentioned this chapter here is the last of three devoted to the reign of king saul which focus on his military efforts first against the philistines and then here against the amalekites now even though there there were given details of or here were given details of how brutal war can be that's not the writer's main concern. That's not really God's main concern here when he led the writer to write this. Nor is this what really we need to pay attention to. Rather, these chapters are intended to answer the question, why did God reject Saul as king of Israel? Well, his war with the Amalekites contributes to this explanation. You see, this was a war 
that had been divinely initiated. It had strict regulations and restrictions. But Saul proves unwilling to accept God's restrictions and suffers prophetic condemnation as a, as a consequence. By now, it's become apparent that Saul was on a downward spiral. He was on a downward slide and he was only going faster and faster as he neared the bottom. No matter what he was given to do, there was always a reason why he didn't completely and thoroughly obey what he was instructed to do. Well, in this chapter, he again is given a command, a direct command from God to accomplish a specific task, to destroy the Amalekites. See, long before this chapter, long before 1 Samuel chapter 15, in the days when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, when they left Egypt, Israel had been savagely attacked from the rear, surprise attack, like a sneak attack, by the Amalekites. A deed that the Lord promised in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, to avenge someday. And so now the order was clear. It was that time. Everything that breathed was to be destroyed. Now, in case you're asking why, let me just right now just give you two simple answers. First, because we know God is holy and righteous, he always has a reason and purpose for the things he says and the things that he does, even when they don't make sense. It says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, the Lord has prepared everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. Now, I'll get more into this in a bit, but this leads me to the second simple reason that God commanded the Amalekites to be wiped out. Even though God had been patient with the people of Amalek for years, his word against them had never changed. It stayed the same. It was constant. He said there in, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, that as a punishment for their sin, he would completely blot out the memory of Amalek. And so now God chose to accomplish this by using Saul's army as instruments of his, of his wrath. You see, Israel was uniquely the people and the chosen nation of God set apart to bear his name and his witness to the world. And as such, it was vital for them not to be exposed or influenced by their pagan neighbors so that they wouldn't compromise their relationship with the Lord. 
same is with us. What I'm saying, you need to get rid of anything that's going to one day eventually make you compromise your relationship with the Lord. Now, before I continue explaining this passage, I want to go back just a little bit and try to answer the question maybe some of you are thinking. Why would God have the Israelites exterminate an entire group of people, women and children included? included? This here is a very difficult issue. And I know that it may lead to more questions. But here's the bottom line. Although we may not completely understand why God would command such a thing, we trust, I trust, and I hope that you trust that he is just, that he is a just God. However, it's also important to recognize that we'll never be able to fully understand a sovereign, infinite, and eternal God. We may know him, we may have a relationship with him, but to fully understand him, to fully comprehend everything about him, that would take, that would mean that we'd have to be God ourselves. As we look at difficult issues such as this one that are in the Bible, we must remember that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are, are higher than ours. We have to be willing to trust God and have faith in Him. Again, even though we may not understand His ways. Now, unlike us, God knows the future. God knew what the results would be if Israel did not completely eradicate the Amalekites. If Israel did not carry out God's orders, the Amalekites would come back to trouble Israel in the future. And we know that Saul claimed to have killed everyone but the Amalekite king. But did he? Did he really or was he lying? Well, when we get to chapter 30, we're going to see that just a couple of decades later, there were enough Amalekites to take David and his men's families captive. After David and his men attacked the Amalekites and rescued their families, 400 Amalekites escaped. If Saul had fulfilled what God had commanded, this wouldn't have happened. And then several hundred years later, in the book of Esther, we're told about a descendant of Agag. And his name was Haman, who tried to have the entire Jewish people exterminated. So you see, Saul's partial obedience almost resulted in Israel's destruction. God knew this would occur. And so I believe this reasonably explains why God ordered the extermination of the 
Amalekites ahead of time. But probably the most difficult part of these commands from God is that he ordered the death of children and infants as well. Why would God do that? Well, from a human perspective, from our perspective, from a ground level perspective, yeah, this doesn't make sense. How can a holy, good, and, and beautiful God order such a horrible thing to happen? What do these babies do? However, if we look, if we flip it and look at this question from a different perspective, maybe from a 40,000 foot view perspective, or even from a biblical perspective, from God's perspective, there's a couple of answers that, that make sense. First, according to what it says in Psalm 51.5 and Psalm 58.3, children are not innocent. And here, let me explain what I mean. Yeah, they may have never committed of sin, a sin. May have never done the things that we've done. But the reality is, the truth is, and this is what the Bible tells us, is that they were born with a sinful nature. Everyone was born with a sinful nature that we inherited from Adam, from Adam and Eve. The moment they took that fruit that, there was, that was forbidden to be eaten, that corrupted the entire human race. It caused a cancer, a virus that spread generation and generation. And now, again, we're experiencing it too. Death, pain, and working hard, and childbirth, and you know, all these things. But sin was a main thing that corrupted every single human being that will ever exist. We, everyone, even those children and babies, were born with, this, with a sinful nature. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin... In this way, death spread to all people because all have sinned. This means that every one of us was affected by Adam's sin. There are no exceptions. Romans chapter 5 verse 18 goes on to say that through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. Thus, in God's eyes, we're all sinners. Yes, even that child, even that Amalekite baby that never committed a sin. And we all share the same condemnation. Because why? We're all children of Adam. 
So I hope that part makes sense. Now, second, these children would have likely have grown up as adherents, followers to the evil religions and practices of their parents. And third, these children would naturally have grown up resentful of the Israelites and then later sought to avenge the unjust treatment of their parents. Again, this may not answer all your questions, but don't allow this issue here to take your focus away from trusting God. Many times we people spend too much time focusing on one particular issue and then they run away with it and then they come to a conclusion that is totally opposite from what what God wants us to know the, the, the lesson of the story what he wants us to learn from it and all they, all they focus on is, is that oh God it must be a, a horrible the God of the Christians must be a horrible God Again, let me remind you, even though you don't and will never understand 100% his ways, remember that God looks at things from an eternal perspective and that his ways are higher than ours. Ladies and gentlemen, the fact of the matter, and this is, the, again, the bottom line, we have a God who is just, righteous, holy, loving, merciful, and gracious. The question is often asked, what about babies nowadays that pass away? Or what about babies that are, or people that, you know, different countries that have never heard the gospel and this and that? Let me, let me just put it simply. This is what makes sense to me. We have a just God and he will judge everything according to what is right not on our standards not you know what we believe or what we think ought to be no according to his standards and and we may we may see someone even in heaven that does maybe not deserve to be there but they're there because God judged them and they were God judged them rightly and they're there for a reason it's not for us to say whether or not they should be there. And, and again, in the same way, these children that die maybe during abortion, die during war, you know, get killed, these crazy atrocities that people will, will commit. They may have never heard the gospel. God will judge them justly because he's merciful and he's good he is a good God never forget that and for those who want to use this passage as a deterrent as an argument against God to claim God is the God that we serve is evil and unjust let me read to you something that let me read to you a, a couple of verses from Romans chapter 9. So for those of you, again, who have a problem with God 
and how he th- does things, who just can't wrap, you can't wrap your mind on, you know, on, on who, why God would do such a thing. Because again, your finite man, your finite mind wants to understand an infinite God. Let me, let me read to you what it says in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens, on, he hardens whom he wants to harden. You will say to me, therefore, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what his form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or why, or has the potter, ha- potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known endured with much patience objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory. Who are you, a mere man, to question God and his actions and why he does certain things and why he raises up certain people for, for destruction? It's a purpose behind it. He always has a reason and purpose behind it. Again, we may not fully understand it and get it, but that's not our role. Our role is just to focus on him and trust him that he is God, that he is holy, that he does care about you. He does care about you individual, and he cares about the church as a whole. Our Lord Jesus died for her, and one day he's going to come back for her. We will be united with him. Just like a perfect wedding ceremony. And we will be with him for all of eternity. All right, well, now the time had come. So Samuel commanded Saul, go attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. However, Saul was to spare the Kenites since they had showed kindness to Israel in the wilderness. Saul then proceeded to do what Samuel had said and defeated the Amalekites and put everything to the sword. But here's the kicker. He didn't do it entirely. It says in verses 8 and 9 that after capturing the Amalekite king, that was the first issue problem there is that he let the Amalekite king, Agag, survive when he should have killed him. And one of the reasons he let him survive was because he wanted him as a trophy. Look who I have. Checkmate. I've got the king. Let me show around. Let me show everyone my trophy. But after he's, after capturing the Amalekite king, says that he completely destroyed the rest of the people with a sword. Everything 
accept the best of their animals and the best of what they had, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. They kept the Lamborghinis and the Porsches, but they left the Toyotas and destroyed them. As all this was happening, miles away, the Lord informed Samuel of Saul's disobedience. There in verse 11, the Lord told Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king. This here again is also one of those verses that we must be really careful about interpreting because it could be taken completely out of context. Hey, wait a minute. I thought God doesn't lie. I, got, I thought God was immutable and that he's unchangeable and that what he says goes. Isn't this a contradiction here? Well, according to biblical scholar Marvin R. Wilson, to regret indicates that God relents or changes his dealings with people according to his sovereign purposes. Wilson wrote this, On the surface, such language seems inconsistent, if not contradictory, with certain passage which affirms God's immutability, which means, again, he's unalterable, unalterable, unchangeable. From man's earthly, limited, finite perspective, it only appears that God's purposes have changed. Thus, the Old Testament states that God repented of the judgments or evil which he had planned to carry out. So, simply put, Saul's disobedience brought sorrow to the heart of God. He was heartbroken, really, that he had made Saul king. He was disappointed. He had such high hopes and expectations for him. That's what this passage really means. That's what it's really saying here. Well, knowing this, this this greatly disturbed Samuel. And it drove him to spend the night in prayer. Couldn't sleep. He was in anguish. He was just, he also was heartbroken. And by morning, he knew it was clear to him what he had to do. It's clear also that Samuel had God's heart. It hurt God to to reject Saul. And it hurt God's prophet to see him rejected. And so you you all want to know what how you can really know if you're close to God's heart, if you and him have a tight relationship and have uh, are connected together, heart to heart, well, you'll know when the things that grieve him 
grieve you when you look at the world, when you look at the state of this country and what the things that divide us as Americans stand back and ask yourself would this particular issue grieve God? And now afterwards ask yourself, does it grieve me? I know many Christians who are pro-abortion. Say they're Christians, but they're pro-abortion. Abortion. I'm not trying to get political here, but but the killing of babies, the killing of anyone, grieves the Lord. And if you can sit there and say, oh, it's okay. Everyone has a right to choose what they want to do. And you're not grieved by that? Something seriously wrong. If you can look at another human being because of the color of their skin and say, you know what, that person, I deserve much more than that person there, or I hate that person there because of the color of their their skin, and I deserve to have more than they do, and those are the things that grieve the Lord, you know, just the pride, thinking that you're better than somebody else, putting others down, hating your brother, hating your neighbor. Those are the things that grieve the Lord, and it ought to grieve you too. He made us all equal. He made us all the same. He loves each and every single one of us, regardless of where we were born, what we look like, whether, again, the color of your skin is different, whether you were born with a disability. He loves every single human being same and he died for each and every single one of them please understand that please get that when it comes to unregenerate people he sees unbelievers the same they're just sinners on their way to hell if they don't believe in my son and now as born again Christians we're the same I'm no different than any one of you. I may be standing here and teaching, but I'm no different than any one of you. I still make mistakes too. But he loves me, and I know that he loves me. And I know that Jesus died for me. Never forget that he died for you too. Well, when morning came, as Saul, as Samuel was heading southwards, He was told that Saul had gone to Carmel, which was in the opposite direction of where he was going. Now, why did Saul go to Carmel? To set up a monument to himself for defeating the Amalekites. Back then, pagan kings would often do this in honor, to to, to honor themselves for their bravery and valor in battle. But see, the thing is, Saul wasn't a pagan king, and he wasn't ruling a pagan nation. He was God's king, and he was ruling God's people. Instead of focusing on the Lord, instead of focusing on God, his word, what his prophet was saying, he's like, you know, he was just looking at the mirror. 
started bringing himself high. He became his own idol. So Samuel, after turning around and arriving where, finally arriving where Saul was, the king had the gall to tell God's prophet, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But the reality was, this was untrue and inaccurate. Ladies and gentlemen, the biggest problem with pride and disobedience is that it makes us blind or deaf to our sin. What was completely obvious to Samuel was invisible to Saul. We all have blind spots of sin in our lives as well. And because of this, we need to constantly ask God to reveal them to us, to show us our sin, to show us what we can't see ourselves. One way, one good way to do this is by sincerely praying the prayer of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And write this down so you can look it up later and maybe memorize it and maybe... You know, pray it every once in a while. Memorize it. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. I like to tell the Lord simply, I, Lord, if I'm being prideful, please tear that wall down. Tear it down. Reveal to me my sin. Reveal to me where I have offended my brother or my sister. Samuel could see behind the facade. And he called him out on it. He called out Saul on it. By basically asking him, then why do I still, why do I hear these animal noises in the background? Now, shh, listen. I hear sheep, I hear cattle. Why do I hear that? Instead of taking responsibility for his mistake, by this point he knew he had messed up, but instead of taking responsibility for it, Saul came up with with an excuse that made it seem like he had a good reason for doing what he did. Samuel wasn't dumb. He knew that Saul once again tried to redefine the Lord's commands by doing what seemed best to him rather than what God said was best. So before he could come up with more excuses, the prophet told the king, stop. In other translations, it says, be quiet. Again, my translation, shut up. And then proceeded to inform him what the Lord had said to him the night before. He first reminded him of what he once thought of himself. Unimportant. I have no doubt that he was, as he was saying this, he was looking at the monument. Remember that time you used to believe that you were unimportant? and which just kept pointing at that monument. 
He then reminded Saul that the only reason he was king over Israel was because the Lord had chosen him for that position. It wasn't because of who he was, where he came from, or what he had done, but simply because God in his goodness and his grace had selected him. Do you know that the only reason you're saved because it was because of God's grace? He chose you. He's chosen you. The third thing he did was remind Saul of what the mission was God wanted him to accomplish to completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. God didn't tell him to spare King Agag or the best animals or the best of what they had. He told him in verse 3 to attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything. After reminding him of these three things, Samuel then asked him, so why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush onto the plunder and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? For the second time, the king had an opportunity to own up to his failure, but he didn't. And instead, he doubled down on his interpretation of events. He again tried to justify his disobedience by claiming that the animals were kept alive as a sacrifice to the Lord and only after his troops insisted on it. Then, in a memorable prophetic utterance, Saul makes three pronouncements. He first pronounces the futility of attempting to rely on ritual sacrifice when what is required is obedience. The principle here is that no religious act, no or or ceremony can make up for rebellious attitude to God and his commandments. Christian, you can know the Bible in and out. You can you know know about all of the you know you can know systematic theology like the back of your hand. You could be serving in the church. You could be involved in all kinds of ministries outside the church. But none of that matters if you're not being obedient. Full obedience matters to God more than anything any of us will ever come up with. Samuel then identified the nature of Saul's sin, rebellion and defiance. Divination is a sin of consulting with mediums and witches. Defiance is a twisting of sin, and idolatry is replacing God with false gods as objects of worship. Thus, what Samuel was saying was that Saul's sin of rebellion and defiance were no different than those other sins that removed God from his rightful place in a person's life. The third pronouncement was Saul's consequence of his sin. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. 
this was symbolized when Saul tore Samuel's robe in verses 27 and 28. As useless as the piece of as the piece of robe was in his hand, so now his leadership of the nation was futile. Now he ruled against God, not for him. Just as the robe tore because Saul grasped it too tightly, so his grip on pride and stubbornness meant the kingdom would be taken away from him. In this respect, Saul was the opposite of Jesus, of whom it was said he had always been God by nature. He did not cling to his perspectives as God's equal, but stripped himself of all privilege by consenting to be a slave by nature and being born as a mortal man. Jesus was willing to let go, but Saul insisted on clinging on. And because of this, Saul lost everything while Jesus gained it all. Now, as verse 29 alludes, this rejection of Saul and the selection of a replacement didn't mean that God had misled Samuel or even had changed his mind. Rather, God from the beginning, from the way, even way past, eternity past, had chosen another, one who would be after his own heart. So although Saul would still be recognized by the people as their king for about 15 more years, it was at this exact moment that Saul was deposed by the Lord. After accompanying Saul Saul to worship the Lord, Samuel called for Agag to be brought forth. Then knowing that he was about to be executed, Agag came trembling and said, Surely the bitterness of death has come. And Samuel proceeded to hack Agag into pieces with the sword doing the job that Saul should have done in the battlefield. Here was this old man now doing the job of a young, the young king should have done in the battlefield. What kind of sight do you think that was? Not just to the king, but to everybody else. After all this, tells us at the end here that Saul never saw Samuel again. And it's basically represented that which now existed in permanent form with the Lord himself and the disobedient king. The end of this chapter tells us that Samuel mourned for Saul. Even though he never saw him, his heart was still broken. He still mourned for him. He still cried over him. What this tells us is that Saul's failure as a king was a burden for the last judge of Israel. And he carried it for the rest of his life. And then we're also told again that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king. Though God had permitted Saul to reign in response to the demand of the people, 
this very concession grieved the heart of the Lord. Really, as we read this passage, our hearts go out to Samuel. Our hearts should go out to Samuel, who certainly suffered much because of the people and the king they so desperately wanted. When the kingdom was introduced to Israel, Samuel was replaced by a leader who was inferior to him in every single way. Samuel did his best to advise the king and strengthen the kingdom, but Saul insisted in having his own way. Each time Saul was assigned a task, he failed. And when he was confronted, he lied and blamed others. When Israel experienced victories, it was usually Jonathan, his son, who led the way. It was a difficult time for Samuel, but God was still on the throne. And his true king was waiting to be anointed. King Saul had lost his dynasty, his character, and his throne and crown. And he also lost a godly friend. When David appears on the scene, we're going to see Saul lose himself, lose his self-control, his good sense, and eventually he will even lose his last battle and his life. Chapter 15, this chapter illustrates what happens when we fail to learn the nature of true worship and confession. Everything from the church, everything from church attendance to ministry to even tithing are worthless unless they come from the heart. Regardless of where or how you're serving the Lord, it's possible to just go through the motions while neglecting the internal realities of your tortured soul. Samuel reminds us with his word to Saul that obedience is better than sacrifice. The point being that if you miss the reality of internal worship and confession, no amount of attention to externals, such as church attendance or involvement in Christian causes, will ever make up for disobeying God's word. This again brings us to the central theme of this chapter. Saul stands as a warning about the dangers of disregarding God's word and thereby rejecting the structures he has provided to make our lives and ministries possible. Samuel's opening rebuke is a powerful wake-up call for anyone who has failed to obey God. What then is the sound of sheep in my ears? So in a way, the old prophet, the old judge, the last judge of Israel, Samuel, stands before us all, before all sinners, all who have sinned, and raising and raises the same question. And it's a question that we can't and we mustn't ignore. Ladies and gentlemen, the sheep are there. And anyone can hear them. The question itself presents 
the underlying, the, uh, the undeniable realities of sin, what remains is only your reaction. Will you react like Saul? Or will you react like David? Who the next several chapters will focus on. So, if you've lived a life like Saul in complete disobedience, then come back to the Lord. Come back to, to the Lord and He will forgive you and He will bring and He will welcome you back with open arms. As a matter of fact, He's standing there with His arms open, just waiting for you to come back. And He will give you the comfort that you need, you've been searching for. And if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never placed your faith in Him, if you've never opened the door to your heart to Him, in order to receive the forgiveness of sins, I want to invite you right now to do that by praying a simple prayer. So wherever, if you're watching or listening on one of these streams or later on when the recording goes out, wherever you're at, I want you to bow your head, close your eyes and bow your head. And with all your heart, with all sincerity, because again, the Lord knows what's in your heart. And he doesn't want you to use this as a ticket out of hell. He, he really wants you to really mean it and believe it. But pray this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, and I, I now ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins, every single one of them, and and then three days later, you rose from the dead. So now I repent of all of my sins, Lord, and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. I accept your forgiveness. Thank you for saving me. So now I ask that you fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Spirit so that I may hear you, so that I may understand you more, so that I may read your word and be able to, to know what you're saying, Lord. Fill me so that he may also help guide me in my new born-again life. In your name, amen. Thank you so much for visiting us here at Fresh Vision Church. We hope that Pastor Angel's message blessed you this morning. We want to encourage you to spread the gospel by sharing this message through social media. If you want more information about Fresh Vision Church, such as our service time, how to get connected, or you want to hear current or past studies, please visit our website at fvcelp.org. If you're interested in donating to the ministry of Fresh Vision Church, there is a PayPal link in the video description below. Once again, thank you so much for visiting us here at Fresh Vision Church. We pray that you have a blessed week and we hope to see you again soon.